The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody. And I appreciate, especially during the summertime, people really staying committed to the class. It's really how we take care of each other and this study program. And, you know, the big, more than anything, the big obstacle is distraction. Because there are a lot of good things to do in our lives. So just as we end up, you know, end this eight-week class, just to contemplate how easy it is to be swept away by other things in life. And again, not to be judgmental. It's not like those other things that we and others get swept away by are bad in any way. But just appreciating how challenging, and it's especially poignant with this particular course on impermanence, because it's pretty relevant, (laughs) like how to be a human being in light of impermanence. Right? It's a pretty relevant thing for a human being to spend some time contemplating. And yet, it seems more than anything easy to put it off. And off, and off, and off. And even when we do do it, we do it relatively superficially. I mean, I saw it today. I mean, I have my reasons why I put off my study in preparation for the class tonight. But, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. And of course, when I'm in it, it always feels like so real and fresh and enlivening and liberating. But it's just like checking the news or checking the this and doing the that just seems so much more important in the moment. And, uh, you know, Shelley introduced a few of the contemplations or several traditional contemplations. We did a couple tonight. Um, But it's really good to find some way to keep it front and center that feels natural and enlivening. That's a a real important barometer. Like when you do it, you have more energy than you had before you did it. It isn't meant to kind of be depressing or grim. It's really meant to kind of help us settle more directly, intimately in our lives and feel enlivened by that. Because the reason we often feel numb, depressed, dead, I mean, it's not the only reasons, only reason, but one of the reasons is we have some life strategy that depends on being disconnected, right? So, I mean, it's, there are many, probably an infinite number of ways to be disconnected from the life we're living. But the result is the same, no matter what our particular strategy is about numbing out, being in denial, being disconnected, being superficial, being absorbed in things that are relatively unimportant, then the result is always the same, which is we feel deadened by not being connected to the wildness, the flow of life, because we don't know what to do with impermanence or we don't need to know what to do with the groundless 
nature of reality, of experience. Not, it's not the idea of life is groundless. It's the reality of life that's groundless. It's a flow, it's a process. It isn't really much of anything. And we see that. I mean, when and I were contemplating today, as we, we've been gone for 10 days, and, uh, and uh, just, you know, how many bugs just end up dead on the windowsills. You know, it's just like a, a graveyard. We were just looking at one window, and, you know, there might have been, I don't know, 40 to 100 carcasses of insects that a spider had eaten and dropped, you know. And it wasn't, hasn't been that long, maybe a month or two or three since we, you know, got the cobwebs and got stuff outside. But it's just the, the flow of birth and death. It's so apparent in so many little and big ways that we keep missing So how are we going to, like if we want to find our life, we have to, one way or another, we have to connect with this reality of sand through the fingers. I don't know if Shelley mentioned this last week, but I really appreciate uh, monastics, Buddhist monastics, the nuns and monks who... following in a more direct way in the footsteps of the Buddha. Because the Buddha made the contemplation of death pretty central. And, you know, he learned the hard way that you have to, you have to do it in a way that's actually enlivening. There was a time, I mean, you know, you never know about these stories that come out of the tradition. But the Buddha gave some teachings on contemplating impermanence and then left that group of monks and wandered and, you know, because he kept moving on to work and teach other groups. And uh, they were doing these sort of practices about the unsatisfactory nature of the body, of reality. But they were out of balance, right? And some of the monks, I think in this case, committed suicide. And when the Buddha sort of cycled back through that area and saw that the ranks were a little thin. He asked some of the senior monks, well, what happened? And they explained. So he gave them some other teachings, like to balance, like the tranquility practice, like being with the breath. Just the ordinary rhythm. Because it's not just that there are endings, there's also birthings, right? Each moment, each in-breath bursts forth. The only thing that, like, we can scare ourselves with impermanence, but remember the contemplation on impermanence, it isn't so much that we're replacing a fixed idea of permanence with a fixed idea of impermanence. We're using the idea or the contemplation of impermanence to uproot the wrong idea of permanence. That's the problem. The wrong idea of impermanent, uh, the wrong idea of permanence. That's the problem, right? So we're going from a fixation on permanence that is there, but we don't even realize it's there. 
Like there's this, uh, I think I mentioned in one of the earlier weeks, one of the epics in the Indian uh, culture is the Mahabharata. And one of the main characters there says, the most amazing thing in the world is that we're surrounded by death, but we always think it happens to others. And so like one of the suttas, uh, the Buddha's kind of talking about how important the contemplation of death is and uh, different monks and nuns that are there, they're sort of trying to one-up themselves. The Buddha says, mindfulness of death when developed and pursued is a great fruit, great benefit. It gains a footing in the deathless, the peace that's beyond birth and death as the deathless as its final end. Therefore, you should develop mindfulness of death. Right. So then the, the, his students are trying to impress the Buddha. So one of them says, I've already developed mindfulness of death. And the Buddha asks, well, how have you developed mindfulness of death? I think, oh, that I might live for a day or a night, that I might attend to the Buddha's instructions. I would have accomplished a great deal. That is how, this is how I've developed mindfulness of death. Right? So like, yeah, just in one day, night and day. And then another one says, well, night and day, forget that. Just for one day. And another says, just as long as, long as it takes to eat a meal, I've comp- contemplated. Right? Or just for the interval it takes to swallow, having chewed up to four mor- morsels of food. Right? Four bites of food. And then one, the next one says, one bite of food. And finally, one of the bhikkhus says, I too develop mindfulness of death. I think, oh, that I might live for the interval that it takes to breathe out or to breathe in, that I might attend to the Buddha's instructions, I would have accomplished a great deal. This is how I develop mindfulness of death. And the Buddha basically says, all of you others have not been heedful. The last person has been heedful. That we don't let one in-breath or one out-breath go by where we don't contemplate the Buddha's teachings on death, which is basically just to remember to stay connected with the truth. And that, you know, it isn't even about the actual death of the body. It's just that that is such a real metaphor for us you know, for the ego, for the sort of part of the mind that's identified with the body, with this life, with this personality, with our possessions, with our relationships, then physical death, right, the ending of this body's life, is just an impactful contemplation. So, I don't know if we can get there right away, but to have that sort of aspiration that there's not much time goes by before in a very natural way the reality of death is not forgotten. It's somehow in it. Because it wouldn't take much. Like we could be sitting here and aware we're at common ground and I know some of you and I don't know others, but I do know that every life I sense in the room Right? That there was birth at some point, 
and death is inevitable. And the timing of our deaths, uncertain. Right? And that nothing will protect us from the difficulty of letting go, right? That we see, that we sense, except wisdom. And again, the three contemplations that we did tonight, it's not like it, it has a very specific purpose. How to be a human being with more freedom, with more love, with more release, with more skill, right? So we're checking it out, as the Buddha says, ehi pasiko, come and see. So when we contemplate impermanence, what's the effect? When we keep it in mind in that way, what effect do we notice? And that we shared, and I think you did recently with Shelley, you know, in the small groups we sh- we've shared, like, well, what do we actually see? And how, you know, how uh, specific do we have to get to break through the unconscious you know, fixation that it happens to others, but not to me. Because intellectually, we get it. You know, people die, we all die. But we tend to sense it or see it out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are tornadoes, and sometimes tornadoes kill people. Or that people get cancer. But it, but to somehow, like, sense the reality of this life. Like, what is it to, it's been interesting recently because when and I have been doing some renovations at our house and uh, it's just always poignant when we, you know, go through the bother to kind of fix something up in the house. Knowing that, I mean, even, it's not even so much that, oh yeah, I'm born and I'll die, but it's like, Whatever we fix up, it's just going to fall apart. It's just a matter of time. Whatever garden plot gets weeded, the weeds come back. Whatever spider webs we remove from the windows, they keep coming back. I trim the hair in my nostrils, and they keep even faster as I get older. I don't know. Is that generally true? I don't know why that happens. It seems like the sort of, it would get more feeble as we get older, but <laughs> it's going the other way. Some of you have seen these charnel ground contemplations. It's just another way that we can keep this in mind. I'll mention a few more contemplations. These are a little bit more um, graphic in some ways. And especially these days where we don't really see what happens to the body at death. Sometimes, if we're lucky, we see it with an a animal, maybe like roadkill. Or, but it's, it's kind of interesting, given how many birds there are and other creatures. You know, we, it's a relatively rare event that we see a dead body. Isn't that astounding? I mean, given how many creatures there are, large and small, it's rare. And how impactful it is, you know, to be walking the beach 
and to see a big fish. Like there have been some news stories about some whales and dolphins and other uh, sea mammals that have washed up uh, dead. And just that impact. Or I was uh, did a retreat out at the Porcupine Mountains in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. There's a really beautiful state park on the south shore of Lake Superior, and they have cabins you can rent. The state park does. And I was just doing some mindful walking, and there was uh, the corpse of a deer, but it was mostly gone. But there was just a scattering of fur and some bones. And, and it's just impactful when, you, when we actually run into it. I mean, even simple, like I explained earlier about all the carcasses of the dead insects underneath the spider. When we like really take the time to contemplate it. Or I've done uh, up at Arrow River, Ajahn Punadamo's um, beautiful little forest hermitage where they have cabins for a lot of common ground people who have gone up there to practice. On the way to Thunder Bay, just across the border at Grand Portage uh, in the northeast corner of Minnesota, just 20 miles past the border crossing, um, there's this wonderful place you can go practice. And I remember... I maybe even mentioned it during this course, just doing walking practice in the cabin. And there was a window at one end of the cabin where I would turn around, and as I was walking, a beautiful, colorful forest bird just flew right into the window and then crashed and fell. So each time I got to the end of the walking lane, right where the window was right in front of me, I saw the bird there, just motionless. And uh, and just it was so impactful to have seeing the life end, right, and just sitting there. And then just the desire, like, uh, how pro-life we can be, how death is the enemy, life is good, as if there's life without death, right? See, that's the delusion. And it's like we see it a lot in our Western medicine, where death is the enemy, illness is the enemy, as opposed to death and illness is inevitable. Like from a spiritual point of view, death and illness is inevitable and really a teacher, right? Like how to be easeful, how to be graceful, how to be wise and kind with the whole cycle, birth and death, uh, health and illness, gain and loss, praise and blame, so one contemplation to kind of break through the delusion is just to use your imagination about death. Like, let's say you go to a cabin. It's that poignant movie. It wasn't a perfect movie, but it was poignant. Into the Wild, is that what it was called? Anybody? It was based on a true story of a young man, kind of a bit eccentric, who just had this passion and kind of obsession a little bit about getting into the wild in Alaska and uh, got to a place where because of the snow melt he couldn't get out because the river was so high and uh, I just I don't want to ruin it but you know he didn't live and uh, <laughs> well I think that I think that's apparent from the you know from the beginning of the movie but in any case but just that you know just that contemplating the idea of what would happen, you know, just 
bringing that to mind. And for me personally, it was such a powerful start to my Buddhist practice way back, I think it was 1982, and I just contemplated dying. I was a bit obsessed about it. And I just, you know, not just once, but over and over, but in one time in particular, it was really impactful, just lying there, contemplating as if this was the end. I was going to get up. And just imagining, it was just a contemplation with, with thought, with imagination, what that would be. And you can, you know, whatever you need to bring it to mind, you can imagine the decomposition of the body, the bloating, the rotting, the drying out, the animals that would feed on the body. But in a very naturalistic way, it's not, the point isn't to disgust ourselves, the point is just to come into alignment with nature. We could be happy for the animals that, you know, would be fed and supported. Happy maggots. I mean, it's interesting. Like, why do, why do we think we're so disgusted by maggots? It's not that maggots are bad. It's that we haven't integrated birth and death into our lives. Or just the smell of rotting meat. Right? There's a very distinct smell, right? That's so repulsive. And it's just a window into what we haven't included. Because you know when you smell a, a little baby or a friend and they're just like healthy, they're just the smell of life and you know, we don't mind that smell. <laughs> But the smell of death, the smell of rot, well, that's a different thing. And so related to this is a little... So that's one thing. It's just all the way through to there's nothing left but dust. You know, so from the more pungent part of the body falling apart to there's nothing left. And again, it isn't even so much about the body. It's really that the mind itself is so... Uh, ephemeral. But the body exists for us metaphorically as sort of, you know, the the visceral concrete attachment. This, you know, flesh and blood of the body. And related to this is something I heard uh, Venerable Analio talk about that he does at night. And I might have mentioned it earlier in the course about but just to remind us that just to lie down at night, basically do a short version of imagining death and use the elements meditation. A lot of people get confused about it, but the elements meditation is just contemplating the body as sensation. So what do we actually feel? Not the idea, but the actual experience of the body. And traditionally in Buddhism, they divide it into four categories. When we feel the body, when we're aware of the body as the body, not as concept, we're aware of temperature, coolness, warmth, everything between, right? And you can be aware of temperature without the concept of temperature. You don't need to be telling yourself, oh, warmth, to know warmth or coolness, right? Because it's an elemental, non-conceptual part or reality. 
And then there's the earthiness of the body, things like weight, heaviness, lightness, smoothness, roughness, um, hardness, softness. Those are like the earthy elements of the body. And then there's the water element, the fluidity. And then there's the movement part of the body, the air element, it's called, or the wind element. So the traditional, like one traditional contemplation, just lying there in your bed, got your PJs on, teeth are brushed, and you can just imagine the heat, right? The heat we get from digestion, burning sugars, right? Just imagine the heat dissipating. This is, do winter camping someday, and you really get this, like just like how important it is to keep bodily heat if you're out in the wilderness in a more exposed way. I remember once I was uh, I did a pretty serious, uh, I think it was a two-week backcountry trip in Alaska where we got flown in high country and uh, where there's a lot of glaciers. And uh, so we have to f- uh, cross a lot of these rivers. And sometimes it's pretty high. You end up, you know, of course, getting quite wet. Um, you have to rope up and everything. And that particular day, we had to cross several, and uh, wasn't much sunshine, even though we were there in the middle of the summer. And by the end of the day, we are exhausted and cold. And uh, you never really know, you know, because you're walking, you don't know how close you are to hyperthermia. And I just remember, like, at the end of that day, we wanted to eat, get in the tent, there are three of us, all in one tent, and in our sleeping bags. And I remember how long it took for the body to get its heat back. Like we were in the tent having eaten like for several hours before we felt like the body had reached equilibrium and there was bodily heat. So it's like, so there in the safety of your bedroom, you can just visualize giving the heat element away, not trying to like hold on to it, right? And this is, I, I've mentioned this to several people, just generally making peace with coldness, making peace with coolness, right? Where you know you're not going to die, right? So you really can trust not grasping, not holding to any heat. Just give it away. Because heat's nature is to radiate out, right? So just let it go out. So that's the first part. And then the second part, and you can just do it as you're hearing me talk about it, right? And then the second part would be to let the earth element go. So the wasting away of the body. You know, the digestion, digestion no longer working, not replenishing the cells, or just getting thinner, wasting away, shriveling up. And then the the third would be the drying out of the body, including leaking through the orifices, but also just the drying up, not being able to take in liquids, drying up. So wasting away, drying up. And then the fourth would be the ending of the wind element, right? The breathing. Some of you have been around bodies at the time of death. That's sort of, they call it the death rattle. Breathing in, breathing out gets really rough and not sort of smooth. And eventually, like there are even pauses, and you think, oh, that's it, the person's died. And then there it is again, 
And it can go on for you know, 48 hours longer even, where the body is just sort of, just whatever that life force is, it's just doing the best to keep it going until it can't. And then there's stillness. And the air element has gone away. The movement element is no longer in the body. So heat, earth, water, air dissipating. Because the elements in the Buddhist sort of um, understanding, the elements return to the elements. Like we say as a good Catholic boy, dust to dust. The priest would use ash and do the little... That's a really powerful ritual as a kid, you know, to just have that contemplation of death. So again, the the question really is how are we going to, in our own way, in a way that is enlivening and has the flavor of liberation, right? We're liberating the mind from delusion. How are we going to keep this in mind? in our own life. And it's really important that we find our own way to make this good medicine for our heart and mind, liberating medicine. Because you could really see how, oh, we feel we got to do it this way, and we just end up being counterproductive, like just scaring ourselves. Like what would be the value of becoming more frightened of death? How would that help anybody? Right? It would just... I mean, all kinds of neurotic results of becoming more frightened. So we're really trying to, in a more relaxed, integrated way, come into the stream of our lives, the non-fixedness of our lives. Because remember, as I said at the beginning of the talk, the point of these, all of the Buddhist contemplations of impermanence is to remove the fixed idea of permanence. It's not to scare ourselves. It's to learn to live free of any fixed, any way that the mind might be dependent on permanence, the idea of permanence. And there's no such thing as permanence. There are only ideas, mental constructions of permanence. Like when experientially, we have never experienced permanence. We only, when we open to life directly, we only experience flow, change, the coming and going, the movement of body and mind. That's always been our lived experience. But because we have this capacity to think and imagine, we can imagine permanence. Me, common ground, Minnesota. Concepts create the appearance of permanence. And that's what we call, say, they're deluding. They're del- you know, it's, it's easy to be deluded by our mental constructions. And the more and more, as we do, the more and more we inhabit the world of concepts, the more and more disconnected we are from the world of impermanence, the world of change. And then the more frightened we are by reality. I mean, that's the way to contemplate this. 
we are frightened by reality. Reality has always been reality, right? It's so we never get any distance from it, but we cultivate a way of being that seems apparently to be threatened by reality, even though we're completely immersed in reality, the way it is, the truth of impermanence. So the, the path, the Buddhist path, is cultivating the continuity of present moment awareness, strategically using contemplations that strategically challenge and interrupt wrong view, fixed views. Not to replace a fixed view with another fixed view, but to challenge fixed view in order to learn to as Joseph Goldstein, he, I was teaching with him recently out at Spirit Rock, he told that story about the parachute. Most of you have heard this story because I repeat it some regular interval because it's really a powerful teaching story of being up in a plane and being thrown out, jumping out, enjoying the fall until you realize you don't have a parachute, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out. <laughs> until you realize there's no ground to hit, right? Impermanence seems to be a problem, but it's only a problem to the idea, the fixed idea that things are permanent. So when there's a fixed idea that things are permanent, that allows there to be a fixed idea that there's somebody in need of permanence, right? So then opening to the way it is seems quite threatening. That's the freaking out stage. Until we realize there's nobody dependent on permanence. That was only ever a construction of the mind, a somebody that's dependent on things being fixed or permanent or solid or whatever. And that's the little glimpse I had. This is way back again, going back to that. I was contemplating death, you know, and I just imagined dying. And I imagined uh, nobody having anything, for lack of a better way of explaining it, you know, just doing my best to sort of relinquish all aspects of being that I could imagine at that time. And I was doing that, you know, I was noticing a little pushback, but mostly it was quite peaceful and interesting. You know, and again, I'm just lying there on the ground on a carpet and kind of imagining nothing and nobody having a problem with nothing, right? Just, and then some pushback, pushback. And then just this clarity came in. Just, you know, it's hard to explain, but just like, who's this a problem for? What's the problem? No problem. Not that I understood it cognitively, intellectually. I didn't. But it was really powerful, really affected, kind of rocked my world for several weeks. I was disoriented. I didn't, I didn't know what happened. I, I still can't sort of explain it. But it was just some making peace with reality. Like the fear of death isn't what it appears to be. But we're so busy packing it away, keeping it at arm's length, that we don't realize it's not a monster. 
So when we use some of the more graphic contemplations, we're really challenging, we're really exploring, is it a monster? Change? Death? Whatever aspect of impermanence is provocative, right? We bring it up and we're just checking it out. Does it have to be a problem? This is real spiritual curiosity. You know, when people ask the Dalai Lama how he meditates, you know, besides compassion practice and probably more time, is the contemplation of death, the contemplation of change, the contemplation of impermanence. The Buddha talked about this as the object of meditation and in terms of the deepening of insight, impermanence is what he you know, kept coming back to as the object of meditation, like to be interested here in the present moment in the reality of change. And then the fruit of practice as what arises out of the deepening, more intimate um, uh, exposure to the reality of change, like that directly leads to letting go. Let me read a little bit about how the Buddha talks about that. So the Buddha says, perception of impermanence should be maintained in being for the elimination of the conceit I am. Since perception of not-self becomes established in one, who perceives impermanence. And it is perception of not-self, right, the impersonal nature, that arrives at the elimination of the conceit, I am, which is Nibbana, here and now. So let me do that again. Perception of impermanence should be maintained in being for the elimination of the conceit, I am. So when the mind through various means, can be in the moment, aware, aware that things are coming and going, aware that there's nothing outside of things coming and going. Right? So even sometimes when we get some momentum, there seems to be a lot of stillness, like a really stable, beautiful awareness. But even that, when contemplated, is seen as a flow, something that's coming and going, not worthy of grasping. So the conceit I am, seeing with the frame about me and mine, that gets teased out of the mind stream when the mind keeps impermanence in mind, long enough in mind, then the sense of a fixed self gets teased out. Because there's no way for me as a coming from the point of view of fixed self, for me to tease out the idea of fixed self. That will never happen. No matter, it doesn't matter how intellectually, how clear intellectually you get that it's all nature. You can't directly tease out the habit of conceit, of taking, understanding things from a self point of view. But the way that that habit of self-centered drama gets teased out of the heart is by keeping change in mind, the reality of change in mind. Because the conceit I am, the self-centered view, 
doesn't make sense when reality is experienced as a natural process of flow. Right? Because self, the, you know, the permanent sense of self, the kind of the me behind the scenes, it only exists in a universe that is substantial. So when the universe is seen to be seen as being not substantial, but flow, process, then there's nothing substantial in that world. So the mind doesn't construct that because it doesn't make sense to construct it. So then this happens without that fixed sense of self. And that's what this passage is about. Perception of impermanence should be maintained in being for the elimination of the conceit I am. Since the perception of not-self becomes established in one who perceives impermanence. And it is the perception of not-self that arrives at the elimination of the conceit I am, which is Nibbana, liberation here and now. And then a related passage. And how is the perception of impermanence maintained and developed so that all craving for sense experience, for materiality, for being, and also all ignorance are ended, so that all kinds of the conceit I am are abolished. Like, how does this happen? And he basically goes through the five aggregates. It's just a fancy way of talking about the body and the mind. Right? The five aggregates, just the heaps of our experience, the heaps that make up our experience. There's the body, the five, the activity of the five physical senses. That's one of the five. And then the mind is divided into four categories. Perceiving, the feeling tone that comes with experience, all the mental formations, intentions, and motivations that arise, and that experience is known, consciousness. So these are just four aspects of the mind. So the Buddha basically says, with each of the five aggregates, the activity of the body, the activity of the mind, that they should be seen as things that come and go, such as their origin, such as its disappearance, right? Each part, perception, arises and passes. The feeling tone comes and goes. Sight comes and goes. Sound comes and goes. Sensation comes and goes. Consciousness comes and goes. Each object that's known, it's illuminated. You hear a sound, it's illuminated by consciousness. For how long? Not very long. Before another object arises and is known by consciousness. So whatever aspect of the mind or body when looked at carefully, it's seen as arising and passing. This is how the Buddha says we develop the perception of impermanence. And it's the perception of impermanence that uproots grasping, basically. So this is the tried and true way. Remember, because it is a little bit different one spiritual temperament to the next, some of us, when we contemplate impermanence, we'll see more the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of experience, more than the changingness. Others will see the impersonal nature more. So these three things are called the three characteristics of change, of unsatisfactoriness, because things are so ephemeral, natural process. They're not really dependable. They're unsatisfactory. 
and they're not very personal. So as you contemplate keeping permanence in mind, you can, you'll just notice the temperament like seeing more the un, really cluing into the more unsatisfactory nature, the more impersonal nature, or the change, changing nature. And that's where we're going. So in the fall, we're going to contemplate together in the Buddhist studies course, dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature. And then in the winter, we'll do anatta, the impersonal nature, the not-self nature. But remember, there are just three facets of the way it is. And the Buddha is basically saying, when we keep the way it is in mind, when we go from being fixed, identified, dependent on concepts, to opening to the specific characteristics of our experience and getting really relaxed in the flow of sensation and mental activity, until we notice the changing nature, the unsatisfactory nature, the impersonal nature of body and mind, then that seeing, that deeper seeing, uproots the conceit I am and leads to letting go. And then we realize what it is to be a human being without grasping. Like Ajahn Chah says, we realize the reality of non-grasping. Still a human being, still as much as anybody else, having a body and mind. The only difference is between like an awakened person or somebody uh, with deep insight is the degree, the presence of grasping or not. And right now, what we get familiar with is the reality of grasping. That's called being a good student. Oh, I'm tight. I'm attached. I have expectations here. I have a problem with what's going on. I don't like it. I want this. Right? We get very familiar with that. And we stabilize our awareness. We normalize the defilements because they're so predominant. And we get a sense, like initially in practice, the first number of decades, (laughs) we're getting like, okay, defilements are really strong. Defilements are less strong. And then over time, we get to the place where the defilements aren't very strong, and we can be more and more with some stability of present moment awareness in the flow of stuff coming and going. And then we start having windows into anicca, dukkha, anatta the three characteristics of change, of the unsatisfactory nature and the impersonal nature. And then we begin to uproot this conceit, I am. We begin to have glimpses of the reality of non-grasping. We have little moments where there's a mind experiencing experience, but no grasping. And it's like out of the box. Because what we know is the mind experiencing experience with grasping. What we don't know is the mind experiencing experience without grasping. That we don't know too much. right? Until we start having glimpses. And those glimpses are defined by being surprising. That's how you know you've had an insult, uh, insult, an insight. right? Because the mind is surprised. Oh! Oh, that's why there's such a big deal about the Buddha. <laughs> you know? That's why people do the very difficult practice of cultivating mindful awareness. 
because something arises that's surprising and impactful out of the box. Never what we expected, because what we expect is always on the conceptual level. And what happens doesn't make sense to the conceptual level. Because as the Buddha says, no matter how we conceive it, the insight will always be other than that. The concept of letting go, of non-grasping, is not the experience of non-grasping. So it's good for us to know at this conceptual level is that we don't know what it is. Otherwise, there's a whole shadow in Buddhist practice of pretending that we're in the flow, pretending that we're okay with change and that it isn't personal and I'm okay with the unsatisfactory nature because we know that that's, intellectually speaking, where we're going with the practice. So we, you know, we want to be a good Buddhist So we just sort of start thinking as if we're okay with what we think the practice is about. And what really helps, of course, is to cultivate a mind that isn't overrun by the defilements that keeps us in the place of grasping and we learn to relax into the flow of our ordinary experience of bodily sensations and sounds and thoughts and body and mind in motion, and it's really stabilizing the awareness at that level where the mind just begins to recognize the truth of change and unsatisfactoriness and impersonality. And then we start developing real confidence. So there's a little bit of time left. It'd be nice to hear any questions you might have as we finish up the course or comments from your own practice that you'd like to share with the group. Some of the fruits of this eight-week course on impermanence would be nice to hear, or whatever comes up from the talk tonight. Um, I have a tendency <laughs> to have a greedy mind, and I kind of just let myself be greedy most of the time. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you want that? Okay. Um, and it's kind of gotten out of control this summer <laughs> where it's like, I'm not like working normal hours. So I'm like, oh, I'll just like work at a coffee shop all day or like go out to eat for every meal. <laughs> and, like it's almost slightly embarrassing, but, um, I just like, I don't know. It was like six days ago. I'm like, I'm just not going to go out to eat. I'm just like not going to do it. Like not going to go to a coffee shop, not going to go out to eat. Like, I mean, I'm planning on doing this for six months, but we'll see how it goes. Um, And it's interesting working with craving because I think my belief was that I can't crave something and not act on it. Like if I want something, I just need to act on it. And so it's been interesting, like, you know, like wanting a kombucha like 20 times a day (laughs) and (laughs) for real. Um, And then just being like, oh, it's okay to want something and not act on it. And then I find... I mean, it goes in waves, but it's really energizing. Like, 
extremely energizing and I'm like oh my god I can't believe I was like addicted for so long (laughs) yeah so I think that's what I'm learning right now and then I guess in terms of impermanence just seeing well like impermanent like craving isn't impermanent or wait craving isn't permanent yeah yeah no that's really powerful Laura and that's that's a place where the impact of the contemplations we've been doing this during this course, the impact is so strong to just look at the reality of craving, just keep looking at it, and just with an open mind, like, is this, is the desire to have that real or is it impermanent? Real in the sense that it won't go away until I gratify it. Because that's the problem. I mean, that's basically what it's saying when we really, oh, I got to do this. Well, will it go away without gratification? And just to get interested. And the kind of curiosity that Laura expressed in her sharing is so relevant to learning. Like, just, we've got this life. Why not experiment with it? See what, what can be learned. Thanks, Laura. We have time for one more. Be nice to hear from somebody else. Oh, I think Bob was going to go out this right. Uh, two unrelated things. Um, 29 years ago today, my mom died. Um, so I was 27, very close to her, raised four kids almost all by herself. And, and I'd give anything to have her still here. Um, but the lessons I've learned around impermanence watching her die um, have been unbelievably powerful in my life. Um, so as you were doing tonight's meditation, you know, the, the, the vision that came to mind to me was uh, watching her in the hospice and, and kind of the last breaths and then the body, you know, when the life was gone. Um, uh, talk about a constant reminder. Um, yeah. Yeah. And these images, these memories that we have, it's, it's so potent, like how to live knowing that whatever this is won't always be here. It really affects everything, like what you do when you go home tonight, if we keep it in mind. And it's just, just like uh, the kind of curiosity that uh, Laura was just expressing, like, like, well, who do I become when I keep that reality in mind? What kind of human being do I become? What do I do with this life? Interesting to find out. One one more thing, yeah, totally unrelated. Um, Mary and I live in St. Paul, so we drive over the Mississippi River to and from Common Ground. And um, uh, it, it, this may sound goofy, but it, it, it talk about a lesson in impermanence. That's not a river. That's just a bunch of water that's constantly in flux, and there's a big ditch. But the the <laughs> contours of that ditch will change over time. Uh, so it ain't a thing. It's just constant, total movement. Um, that's been my little uh, uh, reminder of impermanence. Yeah. Thank you. I have to leave it here. Thanks, Bob. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Enjoy the silence for a few breaths.
putting down the world so we can pick it back up moment by moment. Thanks again, everyone. Really nice being here together this summer. And thanks to Wynn and Shelley, the co-teachers of the class. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.